0: Uh, raps that I hear uh, about the church or even Christianity as a whole is that uh, it's often described as boring or completely irrelevant. And I remember that, struggling with that as a, as a college person myself, wondering why would anyone want to be a follower of Christ? And, and I came from a background where I grew up in the church, but I kind of mocked my youth group. Don't get any ideas there, guys. Um, <clears throat> And I, I, along with a lot of other people I've met, have viewed it as it's a weak place for people who need a crutch in life, and that the church is a place of boredom, and it's not really relevant to the needs of the, the life in general. And I think part of it is uh, the way we have perceived Christianity in our own lives. We haven't taken it to the fullest extent. There are churches that, uh, quite frankly, it is, is downright boring. I remember once I was in a, a church building, not this building, another building, and I remember just wanting to pray for the, for the people of that church. And I, I remember distinctly sitting there and I said, Lord, what? I'm open now. What? What is the things that is causing this inner city church not to grow? And, and a very strong message I felt from God was people here are just bored. <laughs> and I remember praying against a spirit of boredom in this building. And I'm thinking, I don't know what's going on here, but it's really boring. Man, uh, if anything should not be true, it should not be that the Christian life or the church is boring. Annie Dillard, I don't know if you have any of, any of you are Annie Dillard fans, but Annie Dillard has written a book called Teaching a Stone to Talk. And one of my favorite quotes, uh, period, but uh, especially one of my favorite Annie Dillard quotes is on page 40. And, he, and she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, matching up, or making up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' hats and straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. I've read that quote before. I love that quote. What should the church be like? We should be handing crash helmets to people as they come. Here's your worship folder. What size is your head? <laughs> Bart said that. Bart, uh, Bart Carey said that. We should have our first service and hand out crash helmets because we've come to love this quote so much. Folks, we're in the beginning of a, of a book right now, the book of Acts, Whereas, if we're honest as we read it and we're honest about the implications about our lives and about this church, man, you're going to need a crash helmet. You're going to need a life preserver. You need a signal flare. If, 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 If Christianity is boring to you, you have not licked your fingers and stuck it in the outlet of God. I don't know what you're doing, but you're not getting the real picture. Your picture of Christianity is not an accurate one. And the book of Acts is going to set your hair on fire from electricity going through it. It already has me. And we haven't really even started yet. We've been just prefacing so far. Today we're going to kick off what looks like to be about a year and a half to two year study of the book of Acts. The last three weeks were more just preface. Kind of looked at some things in the book of Luke and what was going on beforehand. Today we kick it off. So I want to read the first five verses as we start to get into this book. If you want to follow along on your insert or if you have a Bible with you, you can do that. Or you can just look at the screen behind me, whichever, whichever gives you joy. Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Luke is writing this book, and he's writing to a friend of his. His name is Theophilus. He says, In my former book, Theophilus, which was the gospel of Luke, um, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to kind of just dissect this kind of chunk by chunk this morning, kind of make some observations of what's what's going on in just these first five verses of the first chapter of the book of Acts. The first thing you can find is that what the book of Acts is all about. It's there in chapter, uh, verse 1, in the second part of verse 2. He says, I wrote about all that, my previous book, I wrote all about Jesus began to do. That's an interesting phrase. He's talking about the entire gospel of Luke, and he says, I'm teaching about what Jesus began to do. And to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. So it's real simple what the what the book of Acts is all about. It, it's about what Jesus continued to do after he was taken up into heaven. Christ came in the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is about Christ, the Father, the Holy Spirit, their work on earth. Primarily in the book of Acts, you'll see it labeled The Holy Spirit did this. The book of Acts is about the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's not about those 12 guys minus one, and we'll find out um, is it next week or the week after they replace the one? It's not really about those guys. I I mean, yeah, they're players in the deal, but they're like a sailboat who's just riding this incredible storm of wind that's coming. It's not really about the boat, it's about the, the wind. And the wind is the spirit. So there's the purpose right there. What Jesus began to do and to teach until the day was taken up into heaven, this book is about what he's going to continue to do. And Christ is still doing things on earth now. It's, you know, we just don't write it as scripture, but he's continuing to move. Every person who's here, who's been touched by Christ, you are part of the the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. It's something, there's only 28 chapters, if you're wondering what I meant. you're just a continuing of what God is doing through the Holy Spirit on earth. That's what the book of Acts, but it's really exciting about the book of Acts because it is at ground zero. It's where it starts. It's where the, the fire is lit and we see it spread. Second thing, second part of verse two. Jesus, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. Now, interesting thing here. Take a look at this now. He gave instructions to his disciples, and he did it through the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a real interesting phrase. Gave instructions. If you have a King Jimmy Bible in front of you, it has the word either command or orders or directions for some of the other versions. Jesus gave some very clear instructions, not like suggestions. These were commands. There was objective truth to what he was trying to teach these men. But he did it through the Holy Spirit. So somehow it's just more than concepts. It's something that impacted them in their soul level. It's something that impacted them on their emotional level. And it is both of those. Right here in the second verse of Acts, you see that that to be a follower of Christ, how he's going to impact you is not solely with your head and not solely with your heart. But 50 years ago, it was very common to just be impacted through your head. You would learn doctrinal truths or major truths about Christianity, and that'd be the end of the, the, the day. Now we're taking a shift in a postmodern culture where you have to really experience everything for it to be true, and perhaps we're dropping objective truth. Jesus says it's both. If you, if you love God with your mind but don't love him with your emotions. And those of us who are Swedes and Germans have to learn how to do that. You know, it's like the old joke where the, the Swede says to his wife, after she says, do you love me? And she, he says, I told you on the day we were married, I love you. If it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> that's just part of who we are. I mean, that's what I'm, I'm both Swedish and German both. So I've got this kind of stoic background that has taken me years to kind of figure out my emotiveness, which I'm a pretty emotive person. But it doesn't come through culture. And there's this other side of us that says, I have to know, and we don't want to dismiss that. You need to understand the basic truths of Scripture. Both those things are true. And that's what Jesus offers you, the whole package. He offers you to blow your mind with truth and to set your heart on fire with with himself, satisfying you in ways that words can't, healing you in ways that, Doctors can't and psychologists can't and relationship therapists can't. He's amazing. He's subjective and he is objective. One of my favorite quotes, and I use it often often when we prepare for worship. I did it today, is that worship really is setting your mind's attention and your heart's affection upon Christ. It's both those things. It's both those things, your mind's attention and your heart's affection. And here's what he's saying right there and he gave them instructions. Through the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. There it is, objective truth again. And Jesus, you saw from last week, he gave them a series of proofs. If you remember, we went through Luke chapter 24 last last week, and you could see that the first thing he does is there's an empty tomb with a smart, a smart, a smart aleck angel saying... Why do you look for the living among the dead? Great line, great line. Use that at a party sometimes. It's cool. <laughs> not sure how it fits there, but it's just a cool line. And then and then these other people come and they look at the tomb and it's empty. They, these two guys who were part of the followers of Christ, not the, one of the apostles, but they were part of the, the followers of Christ, were walking on the way to Emmaus. And Jesus shows himself to them and he walks on them and he explains the scripture to them. And shows them that Christ had to suffer and had to go through all these things. He had to be crucified. And he had to raise again. And these guys are blown away by this at the very end when they... Something about when he eats, it's either the breaking of the bread or his tone of his voice. Or somehow he reveals himself to them and he knows, wow, this is Jesus. They come running back and they talk to the other disciples, the the apostles. And the apostles said, yeah, Peter had a, a, a time with Christ also. And we're hearing what you're saying. We believe he's risen. But even more than that, all of a sudden when they're talking, Jesus appears to them. And he says, don't be afraid. And they all thought it was a ghost, which is kind of strange because they just said they believe that Jesus has had been raised from the dead. He says, no, I'm not a ghost. Here, touch my hand. See the wounds in my hands and my side and on my feet. I'm not a ghost. They were still afraid. And so, again, the eating thing, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Maybe it's a cultural thing. But they took some fish and eat. He ate it, and they went, He is a risen Christ. The fish thing doesn't work for me. The hands thing works for me. But whatever works. The interesting thing here is it says here in this passage that he says he gave them many convincing proofs. He gave them enough to satisfy them. He gave them enough so that it would prove, even though these were his followers, he gave them enough so that they could be satisfied. Because these people... Both men and women who were in that room at the time were going to go through major suffering. And they needed enough to say, is it worth it? Are you really who you are? Now, this got me thinking. It's got me thinking. He gave them just enough. He gave them enough proof to prove that he was the Son of God risen. I have a lot of conversations with people who, who uh, you know, we hope, you know, if this is a typical Sunday, there are people that maybe your roommate dragged you or whatever, and, and you're, just, you're just kicking the tires of Christianity. You're not even sure if there's a God out there at all. And that's great. And I have conversations with, with a lot of people like that. They wonder if there's even a God out there. And, he, and you start to wonder, God, why don't you prove yourself to them? And I'm reminded of a passage in Romans, and I didn't put it on the screen here because I thought of it later, <clears throat> Where Paul says that God has given you enough. Romans 1 verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, so punishment is coming against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress, that means to hold back the truth by their wickedness, "...since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." Jesus gave the, the disciples, the, the apostles, and everyone else who was in that room enough proof that day that He was risen... Do you know that God has given you enough proof right now that he exists? You're saying, no way. No way. How do I know that God exists? When you look at anything that God has created, you can hear the echo of Genesis 1. You can look up at the boundary waters and look at the beauty of those rock ledges or the lakes or mosquitoes or whatever it is you think is beautiful. And you can hear the echo of Genesis 1. I created this. I am here. You can look at it uh, uh, when a newborn is born. If if there's a dry eye in a house, in that room, you are a hardened person. It is amazing when a newborn is born. You can see it all over the place. Why? God has made it plain to them. That's fascinating. God has done enough in the world, through creation, through people, through His Word, the Bible to convince anyone that he's there. You have to, I have to stop suppressing it. Romans says that we suppress it. We push it away. Let it go. Let God show himself to you and be convinced. It's also interesting that Jesus only did those things. He wasn't going to continue to do parlor tricks for them. I'm only going to do these things and that's it. That's enough. You have enough proof. God has given you proof. He appeared to them, Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days. During this time when he's back on earth, uh, after his resurrection, he teaches them for 40 days and then he tells them something big is coming. Verses 4 and 5, he says he was eating with them and he gave them a command, don't leave Jerusalem. Stay here and wait for the gift my father commanded. For John baptized with water but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really well. everything else is kind of introduction. Let me, let me kind of get to this. This was the big deal. This was what everybody was waiting for. This goes back. If you were a faithful Jewish person, this whole thing about the spirit of God is coming would have raised up things in your mind. I'm going to quote, look at two passages in the Old Testament. First of all, Ezekiel chapter 36. You got to get the context of this first, though. Ezekiel was written as a prophet of kind of gloom and doom to a nation that had completely turned their back on God, the people of Israel. They, they had turned their back on God, and so God punished them by taking them and spreading them all over the other nations. They had, And when they went to these other nations, they still had the gall to not follow God. So God is saying in Ezekiel 36, you're profaning my name, my reputation, my glory. You're profaning me. Because, first of all, you're supposed to follow me, and then I spread you out all over the place, and you're profaning me out there. And so he's kind of pronouncing a judgment on them. (laughs) And the judgment comes in the form of a blessing. He says, I'm going to do something, but just know this. It's not because you're really cool that you're going to get it done to you. I'm doing this because of my reputation, because of my name. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22, says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, he's speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet, tell the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. I mean, I hate when someone, you know, talks bad of me, you know, behind my back or front of my back, even worse. Uh, But just think what God feels like when people, the phrase, profane his name. Most important thing about God is his reputation, his glory. And these people are profaning it. I'm not going to do these things because of you. I'm going to do it for me. 23, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And then here comes the thing they're waiting for. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What he's saying here is things are going to be a little differently now. I'm going to move in you. No longer are you going to have to struggle to follow me. There's going to be something that's going to come. The spirit from me is going to reside in you and it's going to change everything so if you heard what jesus said here that in a few days the spirit's going to come it would have brought that mindset it would also brought from the uh, book of joel and we'll look at this again and when we get to acts chapter two it would have brought this to mind about this thing called the day of the lord is coming Joel chapter 2. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. There's something coming called the day of the Lord where the spirit is going to come in in power upon us. And it's going to be an amazing thing. And they're awaiting for that. Now... Joel was written something, scholars say, around 800 B.C., Ezekiel around 600 B.C., roughly somewhere in there. Time passes. Five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 800 years. That's a long time. And they're waiting for this to take effect. And then somebody shows up. Somebody shows up and all of a sudden like, oh my goodness, this could be it. It, get your crash helmet on, get the signal flare, it's coming. But it wasn't the right guy, it was John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist came, because Jesus refers to him, he says, John baptized you with water. Luke chapter 3, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them, and by the way, John the Baptist was the kind of guy, you know, I'm sure he smelled. He, he just, he was one of those guys who was out in the woods and he, he ate wild locusts and honey, and we don't know what anything what that means other than it's just kind of weird. And John was out there as a countercultural, rebel, hippie, gypsy kind of guy. And so either John is the Christ or he's a little wacko. And he says, I baptize you with water, but. One more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You can just see John the Baptist eyes, you know, with fire. It's one of those guys, you know, you just, whoa. Let's talk to John in small quantities, all right? That's what he says. I'm going to dunk you in water because you're repenting of your sin. You're turning from it. But you know what? There's coming a time when someone's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, indicating power. Jesus reveals in the book of John that he is the one who's going to unleash it. In John chapter 7, he's at a feast and he says on the, at this feast, the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and in a loud voice he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will, f- will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Spirit was coming, and they, could, they were waiting for it, and waiting for it, and waiting for it. Years upon years, John the Baptist comes, are you the one? Nope. I'm going to dip you in some water. But there's someone coming. In John, at this feast, Jesus says, it's coming, but not yet. During the last time he's with his disciples, right around the time of the Last Supper, Jesus gives a lot of instruction. The book of John is so different than the other Gospels, but this opens up what happened in some of that teaching. If you want to understand more about the Holy Spirit... And what's going to happen? Read John chapters 14 to 16. It tells all about the Holy Spirit. I just want to highlight a few passages, what Jesus taught his disciples. Because remember in in Acts chapter 1 there, he says, um, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard heard me speak about. And here's where he was teaching them. In John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be after I go, and after you wait in Jerusalem, and will be in you. So what's this Holy Spirit? It's a counselor, meaning it's a teacher, it's a guider, and it's faithful. It will be with you forever. He goes on to teach in verse 25. He says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What's the counselor going to come and do? He's going to be a teacher. He's going to be a reminder. He's going to be one who's going to soothe you in the midst of struggle. In the midst of struggle, the Holy Spirit will be the one who will give you peace. Then he goes on and teaches in John 16. to these, This is all one encounter now with his disciples. He says, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a sacrifice to God. <laughs> Thanks for the last pep talk here, Jesus. What now? The religious people of the day are going to put me out of the synagogue and kill me and then have a party and say, wasn't that a nice sacrifice to God? Where do I sign up to be part of this movement? They will do these things, such things, because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. What he's trying to tell them is, in the context of the Holy Spirit coming... This is what you're going to have to go through. He's coming in power, but he's coming in power so you can walk right through fire. Then he goes on in verse 7 and says, But I tell you the truth, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What's this Holy Spirit coming? Wow, it's going to come and it's going to be the one who's going to draw people to Christ. Why? Because they're going to look at their own life and say, Oh my gosh, I've sinned against a holy God. I'm in deep trouble. That's not something you thought of. That's not something that made you say, oh, I need to go to church or, oh, I need to get my relationship right with God. That was the Holy Spirit working in your life. If you're sitting here today, the Holy Spirit drew you today, here today for whatever reason. I'm not exactly sure what, but he's the one who drew you. It says here he'll convict of sin. It says here he will uh, and, and convict of righteousness and judgment, that there is an upcoming judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. Not you. If you have friends or family in your life who are not followers of Christ, and you're saying, oh, if I could only, you know, make them believe. You can't make anyone believe. That is God's job through the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit to do that and be involved in their lives, yes. But it's not your job to make them believe. It's not your job to make them see how much they need Christ. Then lastly, he says in verse 12, now, of chapter 16 says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. So the Spirit is also a guider into truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Jesus, or The, the Spirit is an illuminator unto Jesus and he, he takes from him and he brings to you. Even now today, he does that. So, this is the context. That's the context of what the disciples, when they heard this phrase, when they heard this phrase, the Spirit is coming. They have been waiting for 800 years. Now, these particular guys have been waiting their whole lives. They thought John the Baptist. A few of them were even followers of John. Nope, wasn't John. Now it's Jesus. When's it coming? Oh, didn't come now. He's crucified. It's all over. No, wait! He he rose. It must be coming. And Jesus comes to them, and what's the first word he says? Wait. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, don't, "Don't don't don't leave Jerusalem. Wait. In a few days. In a few days, it's coming. It's so interesting. God is a master. I don't know if you haven't figured this. God is a genius." Yeah, I know, understatement of the week, yeah. <clears throat> but the, the, everything is teed up. I mean, the ball is teed up. The driver is pulled back. It's ready to be slammed. Jesus says, just, just a couple more days. There's ah. so a lot of ways we could apply all the stuff we heard this morning. First thing, is church boring to you? I don't, I don't care. Maybe you're bored by the way I speak. I don't care about that. Is Christ boring to you? Then you are not tapping into the real power source. Week after Thanksgiving, we're going to look at what happened at Pentecost. And believe me, believe me, these 12 men and the people around them were set on fire. If you're bored with your relationship with God, you are not scratching the surface of the piece of TNT you're playing with. Light it. Light it. Perhaps you're a person who's into Jesus, but you're just into it emotionally. You want an emotional experience. Oh, that worship was awesome. Why? Because it made me feel a certain way. Well, that's good. I'm glad you feel that way. But maybe you need to fall in love with God for the awesomeness that he is. Take a systematic theology class or just read your Bible and start to say, God, who are you? I really want to know who you are so that I can worship you in spirit and in truth. Maybe a person who's flip. You know, and you you love theology. This is all nice and straight, but I don't want to get any emotions involved with that. Maybe you need to open up and let God challenge you through the Holy Spirit to be changed on the inside. Maybe you're someone here this morning who needs to have a proof of Jesus' resurrection. There's enough right here. Or maybe you need proof that there is a God, period. Don't suppress it. Maybe you're living without power. You live in the Christian life and you feel like this is just one big do list. The day has already come when the Spirit was poured out. We live on this side of it right now. There is power available. When Jesus' words were to wait for them, there are times when that word is a true word to us. In fact, it's all over the Scriptures about waiting. The power is available. Sometimes the Lord in his wisdom says, wait, it's coming though. Wait. For six years, I would sit in meeting after meeting after meeting trying to figure out how in the world a church composed 70% of college students, the other other 30% of people who you know, are not independently wealthy. How in the world would we ever get ourselves into a permanent building? And I felt, as a pastor of this church, I felt like a failure. How can I start a church that will just be nomadic? And yeah, it's not about buildings. Don't get me wrong. But it was six years of meetings and meetings, and I always got this pit in my stomach like, this is never going to happen. And I have this picture of God snickering at me. He loves to blow you away beyond your wildest imagination. But sometimes he asks you to wait. Hopefully, it's just for a few days. Let's pray together. God, wherever we're at this morning, we know that you know each one of our hearts even better than we do. You know exactly what we need. You know, you know if we need convicting, you know if we need convincing. You know if we need power. You know if we need to spend, just like those disciples, a few more days in waiting for whatever purpose. I hate waiting, but I know you've made me who I am and you'll continue to make me who I am by waiting. So, Lord, particularly this morning, I pray for those of us who, for whatever reason, you have put into a season of waiting. God, I pray that they would look forward to what is coming, that you delight in in giving them things that blow them away, but sometimes there's a weight. So Holy Spirit, would you comfort and would you encourage and would you pull along? And Lord, we pray that the weight would be short in whatever, whatever circumstances it is. We pray that the weight would be short. Jesus said this would be just a few days for his disciples. And after 800 years, they thought, that's not so bad, we can do it. And I pray that you'd give us that clarity too, that you will let us see the light at the end of the tunnel that that waiting period would be over. Come now as we worship you through these last songs, God, as we make in our own minds applications of what you would have us to do to live life in a way that's powerful because we are filled with the Spirit. Come now, we pray in Christ's name.